Right. right. Yeah. I've looked for it a few times, and I, I think I only found it once. And that was somebody who came from Texas, which is another highly endemic area, the Texas-Mexico border. Texas has the most cases of murine typhus in the United States. But it's, again, it's really life-threatening. You probably get over it without treatment, although you'd like to treat it with doxycycline because you could die of it, but you probably won't. So uh, this next lecture is going to be uh, my, my big lecture on life-threatening disease with fever and rash is on the iTunes U on the public website from like a couple years ago. It's like over an hour. So I've taken just a few cases of this, and I'll present the few cases as unknowns. Most of them are cases I took pictures of in the ED that are sort of unusual that might have been misdiagnosed or diagnosed correctly if I was there usually. <laughs> or I took the picture, so I usually <laughs> diagnose it correctly. But the residents might be difficult cases. So I'll uh, start here by this is a true case. Let's, uh, I won't assign residents except for this case. Tell you exactly what happened. So we have, it's 8 o'clock in the morning on a weekday. It's a school day for this high school girl. It's, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and you're in the ED, and there's an R1. Who's the R1 on now? Who's not tired? Anybody? Because you're going to have help from an R3 at the same time. Okay, so I'm the attending, and I'm not there. I either went to the cafeteria to get food, or I'm seeing E3 some patients. I can't remember. So, so in ED1, it isn't too busy. And so you, the R1 and the R3 are in ED1, and... The nurse rushes in uh, a patient. This 17-year-old girl is carried in from the car by her brother, who's like 200 pounds, you know, 20 years old, and she's sort of small. With the parents, they rush in from the ramp, from the car, and they put the child or the 17-year-old girl right in what is now trauma room F, used to be B, right? They put the patient in there. You see two parents coming in. They speak only Spanish. The brother is fluent in English, like native-born. And he carries her and puts her on the bed there, and you're watching him. You're the R1. You're like out there, and so you, the R1, R3, two nurses, and a trauma tech go right in the room. And attending me, I was somewhere else. I don't know for ten minutes. I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't there, and it wasn't a paramedic run, so it wasn't announced. Okay, so here's the history. They bring this. The child is carried in, and one of the R1 is fluent in Spanish, so they're talking to the parents, not the brother who's fluent in English. Uh, so. Um, Who's the R3? I'll be the R3. Nope. Are you the R3? Not oh. yet. Well, I mean, okay, a few days. Whatever. Okay. Wes might be too tired. I don't know. I haven't even worked yet. I've just okay. been in 10 hours. So there's an, R, there's an R3 and R1, two nurses and a, and a trauma tech all in that room, and they just laid the patient on the bed. There's nothing done. You don't have any vital signs. So usually you defer to the, okay, okay. Usually you would like be passive and the R3 is giving the orders probably, right? He's going he's gonna to delegate things. Well, and you speak fluent Spanish, say, or what one of you does, so you're probably going to talk to the parents. So what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do? What's going on? When did all this start? Oh, this is what, this is what happened was she, she went to bed a little early last night. She's supposed to go to school this morning. She went to bed a little early, but she didn't say why. Maybe she wasn't feeling well. I don't know. She's really healthy. And we couldn't wake her up for school today. We went. She's, carried, she's in her nightgown at 8 o'clock in the morning. They were carrying her nightgown. We went to wake her up, and she's, like, really sleepy. So we thought she was really sick, drowsy. We just carried her in the car, and my son, this brother, who's, like, 200 pounds, just carried her into the ED and laid her on the bed. So that's all we know. We, she's been healthy. We don't know what happened. Yesterday at dinner, she seemed okay. Then she went to her room to study. And then she said you went to bed early, but I don't know if she was sick or not. Okay, and she's been like this all morning? Yes. Or has it been getting worse? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to say. We just woke her up 30 minutes ago, drove her, drove her here. Okay. Um, she couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't wait. We couldn't stand her up. And no past medical history? No, they say no recent medications, illnesses, travel, or animal exposure. So there you see her. She's lying in the bed. You don't have any vital signs. She's, she's, you feel, she feels hot. How do you know she's tachycardic? Listen to her. Yeah, pulse. pulse. You don't have, a, you know, there's no monitors on yet, right? So uh, she's, uh, how do you know she's hypotensive? There's no blood pressure. How long does it take to get a blood pressure in a trauma patient? Like 10 minutes, right? When they, when they so, so you can feel the, <laughs> can feel the pulses. And what do you see? There's a femoral pulse. 
is good, the carotid's good, the brachial pulse is getting faint, and the radial pulse is pretty low, hardly palpable. So what do you think the blood pressure could be, 70? Yeah. You don't have blood pressure yet, okay? She feels hot, tachycardic, pulse is 125, you'll say, on your pulse. And so she seems sick. She's moaning. She, if you ask her her name, she says, and she'll look at you and tell you her name. But she's like, she's moving all her extremities around. You know, it doesn't seem any focal weakness at all or any pain anywhere. And you ask her some other commands. She doesn't really follow them, except look at, she'll look at you and open your, her eyes. Okay? And the rest of the exam, she apparently disrobed and you examine her. The R3 and R1 are examining her while they're giving orders for what? What do you want to order? Two liters in this. Okay. All labs. All labs, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> EKG. EKG monitor shows sinus tac like 130. Blood pressure is finally <coughs> like 75 or 80. can't remember exactly. Systolic. What? She, good question. She should have one, okay? She could have a bimanual, at least, okay? Uh, let's say you do that, you don't, bimanual, you don't really feel any tenderness or pain there. It's hard to tell about tenderness because she's sort of altered, you know? So now, no, no tampons. So LP too. Yeah. So um, any antibiotics you want to order? Any subtracts and decadrone. What? Okay, that would be good. Sounds good. Okay, it'll take a while. Okay, so um, this is it. So I come back from where I was. It's like seven or ten minutes after the patient arrived, and uh, the two residents and nurses are all in there, and I say, what's happening? Oh, they tell me about the patient. I can see the patient. It's, I open the curtain, and she's totally naked there. And they say, look, there's no rash anywhere. But there was a rash. They forgot to take the socks off. She was totally disrobed for everything except she had socks on. And I took the socks off, and this is what her foot looked like. That's her foot. That's not a rash here. That's just a callus from going barefoot. On the big toe, and, uh, and there's a couple others on the other toe, and on the other foot there's a few little non-palpable purpura on the toes. Nowhere else. One more thing. They said she had no conjunctivitis. I pulled down the, the eyelid. There's petechiae on the eyelid, on the conjunctiva. So now we have a different, are we looking at a different differential? This is a very rapid onset. She hasn't traveled anywhere. It's a very rapid onset of illness with petechial rash. It's just starting. It's pretty small. And there's petechiae there. So we could probably go with the same thing, you know, spinal tap right away, order the same. What were the antibiotics we were going to order? Uh, vancomycin, cetraxone, and That's steroids. That's good. That's good. Uh, what order do you want to give those? Uh, well, I mean, essentially all at the same time. Well, you have, to, you have to give the steroids before the antibiotics for meningitis. So, I mean, it could be pushed right before, right? Okay. That could be, I mean, you know, one minute before if you want. But afterward, it makes it worse, remember. So that's all good. Uh, so a uh, spinal tap was done in the ED in a few minutes, probably before the, I think he was really thin, so we did it like right away while we ordered the antibiotics. Okay, so we, it came out, it looked a little cloudy, but it could have been clear, it wasn't quite sure, it wasn't like really purulent, but it looked a little funny. So we, the antibiotics went in, and uh, she went upstairs to the ICU, you know, like in a couple hours, and she didn't get any worse in the ED. Uh, so what do you think her diagnosis was? She hadn't traveled anywhere. It was an infection. So it could be meningococcemia, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what's unusual is that she had these little petechiae only on the toes, and they weren't getting bigger in front of us fast, which is unusual for meningococcemia. It's so possible. So we're covering that with ceftriaxone, not the Vanco. That's good for that. Uh, the other thing would be anything else? Endocarditis. What? Endocarditis. From what? Uh, yeah, there's no heart murmurs. No, several people listen. There's no heart murmurs. TDP or something? No, she actually had um, acute staphylococcal aureus endocarditis of the aortic valve. So this is what happens with this disease: is that this 
And it turns out, uh, during the ED visit, at the end of this, we're admitting her, the brother, who's fluent English, like native born, takes this, the doctors out of the room and says, my parents didn't tell you the right story. Uh, I mean, they don't know the history. They, they think she's a clean-cut girl. But she's been injecting heroin. And nobody knows, you know. <laughs> so that's a risk factor. So we had that history in the ED, but it was like after we'd done the treatment. And so um, the clue about this is uh, Staph aureus endocarditis and bacteremia is not reportable disease. And so we don't know how often this occurs. But um, I'm going to show you some other pictures. I think it's about the same instance, at least as presenting like meningococcemia, but about the same incidence. And so you've got to make sure that you give the treatment for when you think somebody has meningococcemia, they could have a acute staphylococcal aureus endocarditis. They only sick a few hours. There's never a heart murmur at that point. Uh, and they need the treatment for endocarditis, like vancomycin. We used to give nafcillin at this time for this patient, but vancomycin or synergy with genomycin too, and maybe the ceftriaxone to cover meningococcemia because vancomycin doesn't cover it. Uh, no, she didn't die. No. So here's another patient I saw. This is also he has acute. This is a drug user with acute Staph aureus endocarditis, who had no heart murmur. He'd been sick about four days though. He developed this rash the second or third day. It's very pain. He could actually walk. He had no heart murmur, and that's the only place he has the rash is on his feet. They'll painful, tender, palpable purpura. You know, he had a high white count, a left shift, tachycardia, a little hypotensive, but mentally okay. He had no heart murmur, but he had acute staphylococcal endocarditis also, and he'd been injecting heroin. When I actually went to see this patient in the CD room, he was reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> but he looked sick, like he had these painful legs, but he had that too. And uh, so he got treated initially for both staph aureus and meningococcemia, and he turned out to have staph aureus endocarditis with no heart murmur. That's typical. No heart murmur is present in the first week or so of acute endocarditis with staph. So this, this disease mimics meningococcemia, and you've got to remember to give the – so if you can't – you don't want to think about the differential, you just give the drugs that West is ordering with the Vanco and everybody. But back in, when this patient came in a few years ago, we didn't give vancomycin to everybody. We would mainly consider treating meningococcemia like cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. It also covers like streptococci and pneumococcus, which could rarely produce a picture. But most of these patients who present like this with, that mimic meningococcemia have acute endocarditis, and they have nothing else wrong with their valve before this started. And they had to have some reason to get the staph in their blood, so they've usually been injecting drugs or they had some kind of a skin infection usually. And um, usually they're a little less sick, they usually, or they usually come in after a few days of it, as opposed to a few hours like this girl, three or four days. Whereas if, you, if you're awake at three days when you're coccemia, you probably don't have that disease. You're usually going to be comatose. Uh, the typical staph lesions that start out, are, they, start out, they start out as pustules or macular lesions which become petechial. And the correct diagnosis is remove the socks. I've seen this repeatedly in, in infections that cause vasculitis, which includes Rocky Mountain spotted fever, um, meningococcemia, and staph aureus. The lesions always begin, they always begin on the ankles and the feet. So uh, I could tell you if somebody has a serious bacterial infection that causes their rash by looking only at their feet without looking at any other part of their body. That's going to be an emergency condition like one of those three. If it's not on the ankles or below, it's not going to be staph aureus, endocarditis, or meningococcemia, or even Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So if you look on the trunk, I don't care what it shows. All you have to look at is the feet. I mean, I don't, if, if it's not on the feet, it's, it's not that. So always remove the socks. I've seen that happen before where patients had only a rash on the feet and the residents had not removed the socks or the shoes, but everything else is off. Okay, so now we have another case. Uh, this is the last case we'll assign somebody. So this we have only in R1. Uh, let's see. It could be an R2. You want to do it? Sure. You already did the other one? It's like an R3 now. Well, I tried to be an R3. They wouldn't let me. You missed it. <laughs> so, I'll do it, yeah. Oh, we could do a student. How about any students? <coughs> no? So this is another case I saw. So this patient comes in with the paramedics at 2 in the morning. Are you ready? Okay. You can have help from an R3 who's there. She, she's brought in by the paramedics at 2 in the morning, but I'm on there with the residents. And so her history is... Uh, from her and her daughter, who's like a young adult, like 18 or something, 
they live at home together. So she presents with fever, chills, headache, diffuse myalgias, and backache for six hours. So she said earlier in the evening after dinner she was getting sick. And then she went to bed early. And the daughter sort of found the lady like moaning in bed. But she could get up and walk, though, and called the paramedics. They brought her in. So her only history, she's a diabetic on an oral agent of some kind. No history of anything else. She's completely healthy, no travel, no bad social habits of drinking or alcohol or anything or smoking, no known diabetic complications. So initially she's febrile, tachycardic, blood pressure's mildly low. She appears to be lethargic, although she answers some questions for you, but she really wants to just lie there and any complicated questions she can't answer. Uh, so you examine her and her head seems okay, the throat, the eyes are fine, her neck is supple, there's no adenopathy. Uh, they uh, examine her back, she's going to have bilateral CVA tenderness. But she complains her muscles hurt all over her body and a headache. But she said the only place she's tender is bilateral CVA area. Uh, she wasn't fully undressed when she was examined by the residents. So she still had her clothes on, but they were going around the clothes, pulling them up and so forth. Um, so the resident ordered some lab tests, and the initial labs are, I think, the, yeah, the, the UA was done right away by calf because I think the doctors thought she was sick. It shows some pyurian bacteria, like 20 white cells, some bacteria on there. Uh, the CBC shows a leukocytosis and a left shift. I don't, uh, numbers aren't that important, but there's a high white count and a left shift. But the electrolytes, glucose, creatinine are normal. I think the, the comprehensive panel was negative for the rest of it, too. So we have that information. So now what do you want to do? Just hit a pilo with urosepsis, maybe? E. coli, maybe? fluids, none. Good. OK. That's the wrong diagnosis, but that's a good treatment. That's a good treatment for what she has. OK. She had meningococcemia. Because, uh, so I was there. And I, when I came to see her, it could have been 30 minutes later, and they'd done this stuff. Oh, when I first saw her, there was no rash. When I looked at her feet, they took her shoot. There was no rash. So she developed a rash while we were examining her. That's her, that's her hand, but her foot looked like that. The, hand, the foot, it doesn't show a good picture, but this is after she'd arrived. She had no rash while arrived, but an hour later, she had a rash with small petechiae, like on her foot and her hand. There was nowhere else. We saw it in front of us develop. And within minutes, each one got bigger. Okay, And there's, this is about an hour later. She had no lesions when she arrived. She started with the petechiae, and an hour later, She's getting them here and there, enlarging in front of us in an hour. This might have been 30 minutes even. And then I think I have one more. No, that's somebody else. So she had meningococcemia, rapid onset of illness, rapid onset of rash, petechiae, and a rapid enlargement of petechiae to ecchymoses. Remember, the Rocky Mountain spotted fever is different. It has a delayed onset rash. The petechiae, if they're there, stay small for like days before they become purpuric. It turns out I changed the history a little bit here to make it a little clear cut. But she had been seen by the Kaiser Anaheim ED the previous evening with the same symptoms, but wasn't lethargic. They did a CBC and a UA, told her she had polynephritis, gave her a prescription for Keflex or Augmentin or something, and she, hadn't, she got a prescription but didn't take it yet. And then it was a couple hours later, her daughter found her sort of moaning in bed and brought, called the medics. So she was misdiagnosed by another doctor at Kaiser. You're going to Kaiser, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> Kaiser Anaheim has polynephritis and hemonidocoxemia. Because they're fooled by the, the CVA tenderness. Okay, with polynephritis, you don't get body aches all over your body. So with fever. When you have a fever, don't you get some myalgia sometimes? I wouldn't think of okay, Paolo with total body. Her rash developed in front of you. What if she had no rash? Do you have said, oh, she has meningococcemia? Well, be careful about this. Dr. Langdorf knows from his experience, too. Patients with bad fever, high white count, and diffuse body aches who have a serious, who have a bacterial infection, like Paolo or something, they are usually have gram-positive bacteremia or, or meningococcemia. Uh, it's well known. So be, or even pneumococcal infection without cough and they have pneumonia. So you got to be careful. Pyuria, especially low, low white counts, like 20 or under white counts with little bacteria in the urine, is common with many <coughs> systemic bacterial infections that aren't pylo, that aren't kidney infections. Right? 
and you get a lot of my, uh, myositis from some of these bacteria throughout the muscles. And where are the biggest muscles in your body? Buttock. The buttock and the, well, in the back. You might have a lot of fat in your butt, but <laughs> <laughs> they're in the back. And so the back hurts a lot. And you have, can have CVA tenderness, but it's due to myositis from meningococcemia, staph aureus, pneumococcal sepsis can all do that. So you, I've seen this repeatedly. People are misdiagnosed as pilo. Unfortunately, many times they're sick and they get the right antibiotic to cover it anyway, but they're misdiagnosed. And so this lady happened to get misdiagnosed at Kaiser and just got a prescription. So she did well. She actually had a total survival. She actually had, she had meningitis. We did a spinal tap in the ED. And she had the spinal fluid came out totally clear, totally clear, normal pressure. And I was surprised when the white count came out to be like 80. And it, uh, the gram stain was negative for a bacteria, but the culture grew meningococcus too. So she probably only had men meningitis for like an hour or two. And she probably had the bacteremia going on for a few hours. Maybe she had two different things going on. Pilo, right? Your urine didn't grow any E. coli, though. Okay. The uh, blood and the spinal fluid did. The urine didn't. Okay. Um, quick question. Um, not forgetting my question. Um, so I forgot to ask you to tell me the different. Okay. I'll have to give you another case. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So. Um, the rash you see from meningococcemia, this is it. So uh, this is a different patient. But um, you notice it's very irregular, and it's like islands. You know, islands are very irregular. Whereas the, the rash you get from a immune vasculitis, like Heinrich-Schulin purpura or lupus, they tend to be round ovals, or rounder ovals. And they tend to be part of the same shape. So a very a, a lesion like this, this is like three or four days of meningococcemia. These are infarctions of the skin. If you run your finger over it, it's tender, but it's also depressed. And it's like, it's very irregular, like islands, okay? Whereas Heinrich-Schulin purpura, and we have a picture of it, more like ovals. They're pretty much, they could be different sizes, but they're not totally irregular. So you can also get the, this is like a vasculitis of the skin from an infection. You could get the same thing from from uh, Staph aureus too, but it probably wouldn't be Heinrich-Schulin purpura. This is the same lady with a meningococcemia early on, but we were drawing pictures of her. We were draw that's EKG lead. Let's see. That's another patient with meningococcemia that occurred. The rash just started in front of us. So there's three clinical syndromes with this. She so, too, what? Is she pregnant too? No, just fat. Was that just a, <laughs> was that just a vertical scar? I don't remember that one. Oh. That was another lady, though. <laughs> there's three clinical syndromes. So, what would you. Now, you're better off. Your survival is better if you have meningitis. Why? Because you're probably diagnosed earlier because you get altered mental status. So the people with the highest fatality rate have no meningitis. They just get shocky and they die. Maybe overwhelming vasculitis. So um, there's three clinical syndromes you could see there. Meningitis, meningitis, without meningitis, then fulminant disease, which is like a quarter of the cases. You get sick and like you get like in shock within hours. That's like when you read in the newspaper and they say some high school girl at Costa Mesa woke up and couldn't go to school, was sick. They took her to the hospital and she's dead with a rash. You know, just got sick suddenly. It's fulminant angiococcemia. Um, factors with the poor prognosis is absence of meningitis, prompt appearance of petechiae, hypotension, high temperature, uh, absence of leukocytosis. So a normal white count's bad. It's usually low, actually, with the left shift. So if you have a white count of 25,000, you're really in good shape. You're probably going to survive. If it's like 4,000 with a left shift, it's a bad prognosis. Because your body is just already not. Yeah, it's overwhelming. So another thing that can mimic this, though, is pneumococcal sepsis in a patient who has uh, a splenectomy or, uh, a, or functionally splenia, but not a normal spleen person who can't get this. It can mimic meningococcemia or the staph aureus. Uh, fortunately, the antibiotics you're giving for all these things cover that. So you could, as long as you treat it early enough uh, with whether it's vancomycin or ceftriaxone, you're going to be covering the fulminant pneumococcal infection, which is, can occur. And we've seen a few cases here. Usually there's a history that they had a splenectomy for trauma like 20 years ago, or they have functionalized splenia for some underlying disease, like a hematologic disease. Uh, then usually have a pneumonia at the same time, but the cough may not be very prominent. Uh, another thing that can mimic this too is also uh, if you've got a cat bite, 
or actually a dog bite with this gram-negative rod called Capnocytophaga canamorsis. It's usually an immunocompromised patient, though, with a splenectomy or diabetic or kidney failure or on immunosuppressive drugs will get overwhelming uh, sepsis with uh, sort of fulminant-looking like purpuric lesions like meningococcemia within a few day, hours or days of the bite, and there's no sign of infection at the bite. And so it turns out that's a very sensitive to almost all antibiotics. So if you misdiagnose it as meningococcemia, you're fine because ceftriaxone or penicillin, they all cover that organism. I had a healthy lady with this in the NICU. Yeah, Would there's been some cases, yeah. Would you just give, like, a Did she get a dog bite, though? Yes. Yeah, she had a dog bite, yeah. Would you just give unison in this situation? Uh, yeah, but ceftriaxone works fine, ceftriaxone, either one. Uh, there's another patient with the same thing uh, that I took out of a book or something, Capnocytophaga. You can die of this. It can look like fulminant, you know, purpura fulminans, okay? And then, okay, here's another case. Um, let's have a uh, Shahina. This can be your case. Okay, now we have a different. This is a nine-year-old boy. He's brought in. It's, uh, it's September. Started going back to school recently, so he's been to school in this fall for a couple weeks. He's a completely healthy boy. He lives in Orange County, no travel, fully immunized, has his own doctor, insurance, and all that. Has a, like a little brother or sister. And so uh, he's in the CD room because the nurse thought he had a rash and fever. So he comes in with fever and rash. And uh, you go in the room, and he, he's sitting up there. He doesn't look well, but you know, he could, if you told him to run around the ED, he probably could. He's sitting there, he's saying, I don't feel well. I'm tachycardic. He's tachycardic. Uh, not hypotensive. He's febrile and tachycardic, but he's not hypotensive. And he, you know, he answers all the questions. He doesn't seem too sick. And uh, nine. And the parents said, yeah, I had a fever, fever and headaches and some body aches, uh, one diarrhea, one vomiting for like a couple days. And then yesterday, the day before, one day of illness, he got this rash. And you look at it, it's actually scatter its petechiae mixed with macules. They're not large. He's not very sick looking. So it's fairly early onset. It's like a day after. It's, and he, no drugs were taken to cause a rash. And he doesn't look very sick. Um, in fact, he, I think we watched him get up and walk to the bathroom and back, you know? No traveling? No. It's, it's from Orange County. It's school started, but he's back in Orange County. It's the fall. No drugs. Uh, nobody's been sick that he knows. His mouth and throat look good. Uh, no ear infection, no lymphadenopathy, uh, no stiff neck, uh, throat looks good, I said. There's no, okay, there's, I have another picture of his rash. That's his hand the same day, same time. And he's had this for a day. His mother came in later. She was outside parking the car with the dad who was there. He didn't, very good, he wasn't a very good story on the dad, but the wife, the mother said he's had the lesions since the day before. There's no big lesions, they're all small. So what do you think? What do you want to do now? So you probably think he could be sick. I mean, he's tech, he is a, so you're probably going to get some lab tests. You want to get anything CBC comprehensive? Yeah. UA. Sure. Maybe get some. Maybe order a blood culture. Yeah, it's febrile, like 39.5. Yeah, so blood culture, urine culture. Okay. Anything else? Could, mm. You want to do a spinal tap? Chest X-ray. Chest X-ray. Uh, he's not coughing. I don't. That was probably done. You know, a little later. Yeah, he doesn't look that sick. Yeah, He's been, so. Okay, so the white count's uh, 5,000, normal differential. Totally normal. Platelets are normal. The comprehensive is totally normal. Yeah, chest x-ray is normal. UA is normal. So that's back in an hour. Okay, go back and see him. He got some time. He's like 38.1 now. <laughs> he's still tachycardic at 110, but he, he's drinking water in there, and he, if you... He could probably walk around if you wanted him to. He doesn't look, he doesn't feel well, but, okay. So he has the most common cause of fever and particular rash in the United States. Clue was it's in the fall, late summer, early fall. He went back to school where he's exposed to other people with enteroviruses. Okay. So he has an echovirus or a Coxsackie virus, I think. Okay. Very common. Very common. And so... So what do you want to do with him? He's in the right season. So meningococcus usually occurs in the winter. There are scattered cases in the summer, but it's usually a winter. Uh, and there's usually an outbreak in school-age kids. 
in the fall when they go back to school of the non-polio enteroviruses. So there might be other kids in the household who have a high fever without the rash, usually for four days of high fever. And you might have seen some other cases in the ED recently. Other families are bringing their kids in. There's three or four with a high fever. You don't find anything. Or herpangian, and you send them home. So what do you want to do? He doesn't look sick. Do you want to send him home? Because you can't get a rapid diagnosis of enterovirus. What if you had a rapid test of a PCR test? It's not rapid, so you can't make a diagnosis. So this is a, this is a dilemma. So uh, he got admitted because we had a pediatric ward at this t This is probably 10 years ago. We had a pediatric ward, and it was a daytime on a weekday. So we had the pediatric ID attending uh, come and see the patient with me. And we had to decide, you know, this is probably likely an enterovirus. But we, on the safe side, she said, get the blood cultures, which we'd already gotten, do a spinal tap and admit them, and we'll give them ceftriaxone for a day and see what happens. That's what happened. And he, didn't, he actually had an enterovirus proven later on a, on a test maybe, but it, you, there's no rapid test. So you can be fooled uh, in that the, by far the most majority of children with fever petechiae in the United States have enteroviruses causing their petechial rashes. It's hundreds of times more common if thousands of times more common than meningococcemia. And so what are you going to do with all those other kids? You're going to admit a thousand kids to find one of meningococcemia? Nobody knows the answer to this. So the characteristic love, he'd been sick for three days and he was walking around. He probably could run to the side of the ED and not. So a kid with meningococcemia, three days of this would be like moribund, likely. And also the, the lesion started a day later, not the first day, and they're not getting larger. You know, if he traveled to Missouri, maybe you could say at Rocky Mountain spotted fever, delayed onset rash, but it's not that. There's no right answer on this. You're going to see patients like this and not know what to do. The best way is you're probably going to end up admitting them um, unless you have specialists that you can, if you're at a pediatric, usually are pediatric cases. The pedi unless you have a, at a pediatric hospital, you have a pediatrician could come and see them. You're probably going to end up admitting them and treating them anyway. And most of them, aren't, you're not going to find anything. And if you're going to do that and you're going to admit them anyways, then do you have to do the LP? Or if they look good, can you say, we'll admit you? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do any rocephin without the LP. So you'd have to come you could be fooled on. You could still have meningococcemia. And the spinal, you don't look like you meningitis, but you so still have it early. If you're going to watch them without any antibiotics, which is an option for 24 hours, you you then you may maybe skip the LP. But if you decide to give antibiotics, you should do the LP. What if because you, you may not get the bacteria out of the blood. Immunococcemia and only 50 or 75 percent are positive on the blood. And with the meningitis, you, you could buy only out of the spinal fluid. What if you do the LP and everything looks fine? Why would you admit the kid? All the blood work looks fine. The kid looks fine. Yeah, so that makes it unlike you could make a case that you could discharge him. Or you could watch him in the ED for like six or eight hours and see if he gets worse. Yeah, it's a possibility to give him a ceftriaxone after the spinal tap and have him come back the next day. There's no right answer on this. If he's reliable, you could do that, but do the spinal tap first. Okay. What time is it? 10 to 4. Okay, let me go on to another uh, case. Um, completely different kind of disease here. So uh, another uh, true case here. Oh, this is... This is not the case of the one we had. It didn't take a very good picture, but uh, here's a, uh, it's another, let me have another uh, R2. Matt? Yeah. You weren't up all night, right? No. Okay, good. So here we have a lady who, uh, a true story from Dr. Uh, Dr. Koenig's patient. Christy Koenig had this patient uh, at another ED when she was a resident. It was a different, pic different, patient, different picture, but pretty much similar. Uh, it's a... 50-year-old woman, and she presented to the ED at, uh, at Oakland, Highland General, Island General. Christy Canning was a resident, I believe. Uh, so presented there. She's had fever for uh, 12 hours of fever, vomiting, and watery diarrhea, and feels lightheaded when she gets up. So she comes into the ED. She's alert. She's tachycardic, uh, a little hypotensive, but like 100 systolic. She looked sort of ill, and she said after she was sick for about six hours, she got this rash, which is painful. And you can't tell exactly here, but these are hemorrhagic bulli. And they're mainly only on her legs. Really, they're only on the legs, below the knees. Hemorrhagic bulli started a few hours after she was sick, and she has vomiting and diarrhea and fever, hypotension, slight hypotension, 
Anything else about her past history you want to know? Travel? No. She, she lives in Berkeley. Any new, any new medicines? No. Any uh, raw food consumption or recent Possibly. meat consumption? Yes. Meat? No, not raw meat. <laughs> Something else eat, raw. What did she eat yesterday? Uh, let me show you her past history for it. She has cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism. Okay, and she doesn't have much money. She's on disability. She has a home, but sometime, but she lives off disability. And so uh, she'd gotten her welfare check from the state two days before. So she went out and celebrated with her favorite meal. This is a true story. She went to her favorite restaurant in Berkeley somewhere and got raw oysters a day before. So, but is she going to volunteer that? That's her usual state. You anything unusual? No, that's not usually do. So she's not going to tell you that, right? Uh, so she had eaten raw oysters the day before, or a day and a half before. Uh, and she then 12 hours later gets really sick with vomiting and diarrhea. She's hypotensive and tachycardic with hemorrhagic bullae. So you've got to know this for your emergency medicine board exams. They're going to tell you if they mention fever, a sudden onset of illness, and they have a picture or they say hemorrhagic bullae, there's only one answer, whether it's something edible or not. And what's the answer on a test? Fibrial vulnificus, right. Okay, so that could be a test question, even though you're probably never going to see this in your life. But it's usually more common in the Gulf Coast. But um, so, but it's often on a test. They'd probably give you enough information to say there was some raw oysters or something. But if you see any question that says hemorrhagic bullae and like a fever, it, the answer is always vibrial vulnificus for a test. Do you ask people to eat raw meat? What's that? Have you ever asked a patient? Yeah. But when you ask somebody if they eat anything unusual, it's yeah. like the people eat unusual things usually sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> that could be. Sushi, you have a question? Vibrio parahemolyticus. Yeah, so that presents with acute enteritis with watery diarrhea and vomiting. It's not a rash illness. And you get over that unless you, unless you get too dehydrated and die of dehydration. Uh, you get that from eating, uh, could be seafood. Yeah. So this organism is found in uh, high concentrations in poorly cooked shellfish, oysters, and crabs. And it's killed easily by cooking and boiling for like 10 seconds, probably. Uh, you get a sudden onset of illness. It can mimic a bad enteritis, but you're really sick right away. Within 12 hours, you're really sick, and you get the hemorrhagic bullae in about 75%. Or you can get petechia and purpura. And the risk factor, they all have something wrong with their liver, their RE system. Something causes dysfunction of the RE system. So when you, so a normal, if you or I were to eat raw oysters infected with this, we would never get sick. The bacteria go to our liver, our spleen, and they're filtered out and we don't forget sick from it, but they, they can't filter it out in their RE system, and so they get it the rest of their bloodstream and get shocky. Mortality is 50% even with treatment. And the treatment is what? You wouldn't have to know this in emergency medicine, but it's not clear what the best treatment is. It's usually genomycin or another immunoglycoside and possibly uh, Cipro or something, but it's not necessarily Ceftriaxone or Vanco. So it's a different treatment. It's usually, um, once you make a diagnosis, you'd probably put them on three different antibiotics. It's empiric, it'd be doxycycline, uh, genomycin or tobramycin, plus maybe uh, cefepime or something like that. And it's not clear what the best treatment is. Now here's a girl with Heineck Schoenlein purper. I took this picture in the ED. So you notice, um, so she arrived, she walked into the ED holding her mother's hand so she can walk. She'd, have the, she'd been sick with fever and body aches and some joint pains for several days, but she's eating and she's walking in. And she had this rash for a few days. They're, they're pruritic. Uh, and you notice they're more oval and sort of brighter red than the meningococcus lesions, which were island-shaped and very irregular and even gunmetal gray. So this is a typical rash you find like Schoenlein purpura. So they're not that sick. They have it for a few days. They can usually, as a child, they can usually walk around. And so on a board exam, what would you need to know? You, you could probably say oh, you think it's highly showing purpura. They don't look too sick. What do you need to do in the ED? Check the urine. Urine for nephritis. Could do a creatinine level too. Urine and possibly what else? What if they had abdominal pain? Or if they don't? You want to do a rectal exam for blood. So rectal for blood. But that's a late finding. Just a cold Yeah, so true. 
So what if they don't have abdominal pain? I mean, what if they have no, if they have abdominal pain, you probably should consider getting ultrasound. But if the patients I've seen never had it. They just had they just had the rash and a little joint pain, and they usually go home after some basic tests. But you don't necessarily have to rush them into the ICU. Some people can they can some child children can go home. So some of those look kind of irregular, but you'd say they'd be a little more raised, a little more purpura? No. Yeah, they're palpable purpura, okay. but, in, but also she's old enough to say it itches, which is unusual in meningococcemia. I didn't think that most people describe it as an itchy rash. Yeah, it, it's not clear. Uh, this child was itching. The mother said she was scratching, but it may not be that way. But, uh, so what, if this child had meningococcemia with that rash, she wouldn't be able to walk. She'd be moribund. Okay. It's a late finding. It's, it's that so bad. Against. Yeah. So I mean, if you if it's a rapid onset, you might still consider it. And so, here's another disease, which is sometimes listed as life-threatening, but it's not. Um, so this is a girl who um, who was about I think she was about 19 or 20, healthy girl. Um, she had she came in and was said she fell off her motorcycle while it was still. It was like sitting on it and it fell over. You know, her boyfriend, she was sitting on it stationary and it fell over on her, on her knee, and her knee was hurting. That happened about three days earlier. So she comes in limping. She could walk on her knee, a swollen on one knee. And so uh, you see her, she uh, has no fever, her vitals are normal. She has a swollen knee, traumatic, right, traumatic. She's a healthy girl. Uh, she's there with her boyfriend. Um, and the, she's seen by a surgical resident when we had those in the ED this poor residency started, who was going into orthopedics. And so he, the knee x-ray, he got a knee x-ray, it was negative. The attending hadn't seen the patient yet. Uh, there was no rash, he said. He didn't look for it, he's an orthopedist, he didn't look for a rash. <laughs> uh, he had aspirated the joint without me knowing about it, I was there. Um, and he got, he, he was gonna treat the hemorrhagic effusion by making her feel better by getting the blood out of her knee, right? from trauma, and lo and behold, it's yellow fluid. He gets out of the knee, like 20 cc's, and he comes in. This is the first I heard about the patient. He walks over to me with this syringe. Dr. Burns, I just saw, he's the ortho intern. He's, uh, I just saw this patient with a knee injury, and I got this yellow fluid out. I thought I was gonna get blood, and the knee x-ray is normal. I don't know what's going on. So I come over there, and how you been feeling lately? Oh, uh, the ortho resident said there was only trauma. Oh, I had some fevers and chills lately, but she's afebrile, she's not taking any Tylenol. <laughs> And uh, so I uh, said, have any rash? No. I said, well, what's that on your hand? Oh, yeah. Not bothering me, but I have, she had a lesion. It's actually a petechial lesion there. Uh, she had a few others on her hands and her arm. It looks like a pustule. It's a pustule, but it's getting dark. But it wasn't bothering her much. So that's her arm. That's her diagnosis. <laughs> so she had a few pustules on her arm. There weren't pain. She didn't even notice them. The ortho resident missed it completely. Uh, so a few pustules, so that's what she had, but how did I make the diagnosis in the ED? Right away within like 10 seconds. No, her boyfriend's there. <laughs> this is true. I said, I turned to her boyfriend who hadn't said anything. Is this your boyfriend? Yeah, this is my boyfriend. <laughs> They're like lovey-dovey and all that. So I said, uh, do you have a, and I said in front of her, do you have a discharge from a penis? And he didn't say anything. He looked at her and said, yes. Like she didn't know, and he, look, she looked at him funny. Okay, so I said, "Can I? Can you pull on your pants and I can look?" Okay, so he had a he had a urethral discharge, and so uh, <laughs> so you you can gram stain the male easily and see gonococcemia, but you can't gram stain any part of the female and see the the lesions because the lesions don't have hardly any bacteria in it. They're actually immune complex, and the cervical swab, the cervical gram stain is usually has a lot of false positive. Niceria. Well, so, so, like yes. And so she had no, she had no vaginal discharge. She had no history of PID. This this male boyfriend was rather a new boyfriend for her in the past month or two. So it was a new partner. That's typical of getting gonorrhea. Yeah. Um, and it turns out I asked him later. He had some other partners during this time. They were together, female. And uh, we gram stayed and cultured her lesion of the skin. It was negative. It's typical of gonococcemia, but if it was staph aureus, it's going to show some bacteria. So we, she had no symptoms of GC uh, in her cervix. We looked at it, everything was normal, but her, her culture, we did cultures, was 
grew, it grew out of her cervix. She's gonorrhea. And it grew out of the male, too, I think. I can't remember exactly. But uh, typical, so sometimes you see in a book that seminogonococcemia is in the differential of serious illness. It's usually not. It's usually, if they have septic arthritis, that hurts a lot. But they're not too sick from, like, the rash. The rash is often not painful. It's usually pustules. There's 2 to 20 only on the extremities. If you're mostly on the trunk, it's something different. I've had residents call me to the ED to see a patient. Oh, Dr. Burns, I have a great case of neugoxemia. I go in, it's actually a staphylococcal abscess. You know, it's like a big lesion, like three, like this big abscesses. GC gives little tiny pustules like this, like pimples. And they're rarely symptomatic. So the most symptoms they have would be they could have a low-grade fever, they could have a high white count, you grow it out of your blood, but you're walking around with it. You're not that sick from it. And you get arthralgias from tenosynovitis, which is asymmetric, and then later you can get a septic arthritis of one joint. It's usually a knee. So uh, it also grew out of a knee joint. Uh, and so, and that's also the same patient, or it could be another one, but... Uh, See the little pustules? And there won't be any on the trunk or the face or the mucous membranes. Now, yeah, so now you say the orthopedic intern is seeing her again, okay? And it's a septic arthritis because you get the white count comes back like 50,000. Gramstein's negative, which could typical of Neisseria gonorrhea, it's negative. Should you have the orthopedist uh, open the joint up? It's actually contraindicated. It makes them worse. You don't want to call an orthopedist for, for gonorrhea of the joint. It never needs opening. It treats, it's cured with like two days of antibiotics. You don't need, you just have to drain it once and you're okay. Whereas staph aureus or something, it might be more serious. And staph aureus, septic arthritis, which could produce pustules like this, but they'd probably be painful. They'd probably be much sicker. Would have bacteria on the gram stain, like 90% of the time. So you can, if they don't have septic arthritis, you could discharge them. Uh, and you could give them a ceftriaxone injection of a gram and technically discharge them on medication uh, or have them come back the next day for another dose. It's, they usually need about three days of a, three or five days of a drug that's effective against it. Now we're getting more resistance, and so there aren't too many oral drugs you can use. But in those days, we could discharge people like, after a ceftriaxone, we could discharge them on augmentin or something like that, and they would do well. If they have septic arthritis, they should be admitted and usually get better in like 24 to 72 hours and go home at three days. And usually, we, we would usually have discharged them on augmentin after that time, after three days. And if they didn't take it, they still would do well after three days of ceftriaxone with gonococcal arthritis. Well, you're supposed to get at least three days of parenteral antibiotics for septic arthritis from gonorrhea. Whereas staph aureus, you need it like a week or two from like nafcillin or vancomycin. So um, you might want to look that up. But if, it's, if someone's like really sick, they're not having disseminated gonococcemia. Um, this girl had the same kind of thing. She, her only lesions were the two there on the finger and the proper finger. But she had gonorrhea, disseminated gonococcemia. Her boyfriend was there in the ED, same kind of patient, who had asked him to pull down his pants, and he had a discharge. <laughs> so if you have somebody you think has gonorrhea, even if it's PID, and the boyfriend's there, uh, you should you know, take him out of the room if you want and ask him, do you have a discharge, or can I see your underwear? I suppose he denies it, because <laughs> they might be stained. But she could, if the guy has a discharge, you can make it... See, chlamydia usually doesn't have a purulent discharge. You're sort of a whitish. So if he has yellow pus out of his penis, it's probably the girl has gonorrhea. Um, let me show a few other cases. So the differential, toxic erythema. It can be many diseases. That's a description. So they're toxic, which means they have an acute onset of fever, tachycardia, body aches, vomiting, and they have a sudden onset of a bright red skin rash. What's the differential diagnosis? There's some life-threatening, you know, there's like seven or eight things, and most of them are life-threatening and fully different treatments. Can we name, can anybody name any? Staphylococcal scoliosis, before it starts sloughing off, yeah. So if it comes in right away, it can look like this. By the time it's 20, 12 hours or so, you would probably start having some sloughing skin. Is that, is that life-threatening? The whole skin starts sloughing off, yeah, it's like a burn. No. It looks like it, but it's a very superficial part of the epidermis. So it looks really bad, but nobody dies of it. That It gets admitted to a hospital because it's so superficial. 
split. It's different than TEN or Steven Johnson. Okay, so it looks bad. I'll show. I think I have a picture of that later. It looks bad, but they have a low mortality rate. They usually get admitted to the PICU anyway. Okay, so anything else? Any? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so very early on in TEN, if you, they get seen early enough, they have bright red skin before they get any skin sloughing, which could occur hours later. You know, so Sunburn. if it starts right away, what? Sunburn. Yeah, they probably wouldn't be toxic. <laughs> what? Drunken sunburn. Drunken sunburn, yeah, okay. <laughs> Anything else? What about other bacteria with toxins? Scarlet fever. You tend to be not that toxic, but it, you could have a high fever. And you usually have a strep throat at the same time. You should always. So the throat would look bad like strep throat. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. Yes. So scarlet fever with group A strep. Yes. No. All over your skin? No. Toxic, toxic shock from staph, which used to be pretty common. It's not too, not too common anymore, but because the toxin strains aren't around as much. Staphylococcal toxic shock. I'll have a picture of that in a second. Anything else? How about drug reactions besides TEN? Got Stephen Johnson syndrome, which could be drugs or infection. A few other things. Those are drugs. We got most of those. Except erythema multiformes, like Stephen Johnson syndrome. And the last thing is psoriasis. Pustular psoriasis of von Zumbusch. And I've seen about one case every three or four years in the ED with that. They usually have a history of psoriasis. It's minor. It's not in treatment. You don't find much of it, like a couple lesions. They suddenly get totally red skin, but they usually have some little pustules on their palms. So that's a dermatologic emergency, so you've got to call a dermatologist. They don't benefit from antibiotics and stuff. Usually you admit them and call the dermatologist who doesn't show up at night to see them anyway. So here's staphylococcal toxic shock. That's a picture I took. And I put my hand on her back and stepped away and took my pic her picture again. So we used to see this. Uh, wasn't uncommon to see uh, like a case every two months in the ED. It'd almost always be a female who's sexually active with and using long-acting. There was temp rely tampons, which would it's, it's like one 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 tampon for your entire period. It was a, like super absorbent. That didn't. So once this started of having. Once this started associated with those tampons, it took them off the market, so it's less common. So what are you more likely to see staphylococcal toxic shock from? Where does the staph come from now? If it's not from, it's not usually vaginal with tampons anymore. It still could be. Things left inside during surgery. Yeah, well, it's, it's usually, they've just had a, the most common surgeries that people have, which is, and they go home right from outpatient, which is inguinal hernia repair, appendectomy, cesarean section, the most common surgeries, they go home for, and they're getting colonized with this, infected with a minor wound infection with this toxin-producing staph. So this, the toxin is produced locally. It's not, there's no bacteria in the blood. There's no cellulitis. And the toxin goes in the body and causes this rash, fever, uh, vomiting, dolphin misdiagnosis, enteritis, uh, orthostatic hypotension, and later just totally hypotensive. So it's a toxin illness. Uh, treatment with antibiotics has no effect on the initial illness. What you have to do is get rid of the toxin. So if it's in the vagina, we used to actually irrigate women's vaginas with saline or betadine, dilute betadine. Wow. We did this. The first year they had these tampons, we would see a guy case a month for like two years, then they took it off the market. Um, and this is the first case we had. I, I'm going to take a picture of that. And there's my hand on her back. So you can see that's like a bad sunburn. Here's staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. It looks really bad, but it's very superficial. And so it's not serious. You still treat antibiotics and all that, but it's usually a localized staph infection, maybe in the sinus or an abscess. Yeah, but it's all over his body. Same thing, staphylococcal talk. And TEN, this is a lady uh, who, healthy girl, about 40-year-old woman, who had just completed 14 days of Bactrim for sinusitis, which probably didn't even need an antibiotic. And she was got it, came with a medics with this bright red itchy rash that's sloughing off in front of us. She had TEN, and she got a bunch of skin grafts. She eventually went home after many months in the hospital. So remember inappropriate antibiotic use. Remember the Bactrim duration for the MRSAs? 
we agreed it should be very short. So that she had 14 days of it for sinusitis. She probably didn't need it in the first place. Okay, so if you're going to give some, uh, and it, a lot of drugs can do this, even non-steroidals, a lot of other antibiotics, um, allopurinol can do this. But if you're on some drug like an antibiotic, prescribe a short course, and then you're, the longer the course, the more likely you are to develop this. Here's her, that's her rash. That's, the, that's another person, actually. This is a different person. That's the person I saw. Uh, one thing I should mention here is, I think the last one is dress syndrome. And we've seen a few cases of this I've diagnosed from anticonvulsants. So this used to be felt it was an allergy, and it's not. It's an enzyme deficiency, and it occur at any age. And so you get treated usually with a newer aromatic anticonvulsant. Um, and they're converted to a metabolite because you have an abnormal enzyme. That the, the t and the toxicity is from this abnormal chemical that results from your own body's conversion. And you get this reaction which starts out like, uh, I'm going to show you, it usually has different names. Now they call it dress syndrome. Here's a boy I saw. He had just been started on carbamazepine one month earlier for seizures. Mm -hmm. He was otherwise healthy. And so he comes in with this painful rash. <coughs> it, it's very dry. If you run your hands over, it feels like really dry. It's tender to the touch. Uh, it's a debitus over his body. He, even on his face, he's a little tachycardia. He doesn't look sick otherwise, and it hurts a lot. And he just been started on this. So this is dress syndrome from carbamazepine, which is one of those aromatic kind of anticonvulsants. Okay, so it's not really an allergy. And so they usually, he got admitted to the hospital to the PICU. This is like seven years ago when he still had a PICU. And he went home, and they put him on another anticonvulsant. He came back with it with this. They put him on another anticonvulsant, which is aromatic, too. And he came back with it a month later. And I was having to be on call or something. So he had it again. Uh, hemorrhagic varicella. Shoot, a couple others. OK, here's one that's listed in a lot of books. Life-threatening disease. Uh, an older person who has comes in with two weeks of fever, joint pains, uh, tender uh, red lesions developing. The patient looks sick but can walk around. This has 100% mortality except with the treatment you can give and they have total survival. You can start in the ED or you can wait till they see a dermatologist they could, you know, in the next day. It's not an infection. It's sweet syndrome. So this is, it's, uh, so you get a sudden, it's usually elderly, older people get diffuse lesions that are non-pruritic, they're tender, discrete, red pap, they're very large, they're symmetrical, and you look pretty sick with this. It comes on gradually over a day or two, and you may come in after two weeks. They're toxic, high fever, leukocytosis, diffuse body ache, there's a picture of it. They, they wouldn't get this the first day, it's like two weeks of it. High sed rate, moral mucosa can be affected in many body systems, and it's treated with prednisone. It just goes away. And if you stop the prednisone, it might come back. So dermatologists would need to see this. But they might not, they come in early, might not look too sick. The skin biopsy diagnoses this. So you might actually admit them and say it's an infection. And once a dermatologist sees them, does a biopsy, they do prednisone and they do really well. And then lastly, I'll show that here's a different, there have two slides. There's a differential of some of the life-threatening diseases with fever and rash. Ninjococcemia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Pneumococcal Bacteremia, Asplenic Host, Staph aureus Bacteremia, and usually have acute endocarditis without a murmur. Toxic shock uh, from staph or strep, that's bad because you get volume depletion. It's not so bad. The toxins don't kill you if you get the treatment, which is like fluids. And then Vibrio vulnificus, remember what's the clue on the skin lesion? Hemorrhagic bullae with that, right? And oysters with somebody with cirrhosis. And dog bites get the capnocytopic canamorsis, which mimics, mimics meningococcemia, but any treatment you give for meningococcemia treats that too. And then one more, some other non-infections can be life-threatening, except for varicells at the bottom. Stevens-Johnson is erythema multiforme major. That's usually from a drug or an, if it's from an infection, what's the infection? What's the most common infection causing Stevens-Johnson syndrome? Herpes. That's the most common cause of erythema multiforme. Minor, but not Stephen Johnson. Herpes simplex, but it doesn't cause Stephen Johnson syndrome, which is the major when you get all the mucus membrane involvement and you're really sick. It causes pneumonia in young adults. 
teenagers, coughing, dry cough, diffuse interstitial infiltrates, yeah. mycoplasma pneumoniae. You can die of it from it. That's a serious cause. Uh, TEN is usually from a drug. The most common drugs besides sulfas are uh, allopurinol, dilantin, some other antibiotics, and non uh, NSAIDs. The phenytoin hypersensitive syndrome is what now we call dress syndrome, which is caused by a certain kind of anticonvulsants. It's not really an allergy. It's an enzyme problem in your liver. And psoriasis, I don't think I showed a picture here, but that can really look like a toxic erythema. Sweet syndrome is the one I showed that can treat with prednisone. You need to have a dermatologist diagnosed. Tawasaki disease can be life-threatening, but it usually causes death 25 years after you have the Kawasaki's, right? You don't die of Kawasaki's while you're a kid. You die of coronary aneurysm with MI when you're 25. So try not to miss that diagnosis. So one of the clues that the experienced pediatric emergency physicians will tell you, the if you have a full-blown case of Kawasaki's, they're going to look sick. You're going to probably think of it or admit them. But early on, and they have a rash, where is it? The diaper rash. Diaper rash, but it's not just where the rectum is. It's like over the groin. Only a diaper rash. 